0: I would love to jump into uh, this really amazing section of scripture that we've been looking at the last couple weeks. So, if you're new with us this Sunday, we're going to be, we've been in John's prologue, which is the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. And man, it is. Rich and deep and wonderful. And, and I love what, what John does uh, as he is writing this and as it is inspired to show us something about Jesus because a lot of the stories that we tell are stories where we get to know the main character in part up front, but as the story continues, you go, oh, I think I know who this main character is. Like, I know more about them now. Oh, this is the, you know, this is the real king that no one really knows about, but he's really the heir to the throne. And that's the way we, we tell stories. But John gives everything about Jesus in the first 18 verses. John wants you to know exactly who he is. He doesn't want you to miss him. And then he spends really the rest of his gospel giving evidence to what he's already said. And so as we've looked at these, these, these verses, like we're gonna hit this, uh, an additional verse, we're gonna add to where we've already been. So if you have your Bible, John chapter one, I wanna start in verse one, but then we're gonna land in this verse 14 today and let that be uh, our focus first. So, in the beginning, John writes, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth if you could just hear john's words and as he begins to write right he's starting starting way back right he's starting before creation itself he's kind of like in the beginning Right, like even before this world came into being, even before we get Genesis chapter one, he's saying go all the way back. So if you could start as high as you possibly could, John is there, and as John begins to write, he begins to talk about this word that was in the beginning and then how light and life began to be expressed and how this witness to the light began to point people and He's just like making this slow, slow descent to where he lands in the lowest point of John's prologue in verse 14. He lands in this kind of the the closeness and the nearness of God as we begin to realize this, this lowest point in the text and yet in all of his gospel, there's nothing more thrilling. There's nothing more amazing than what John is writing in this moment. As he descends in this close proximity of the word becoming flesh, he begins to say something about the eternal, about the divine, about the creating, about the seeking word that now takes on flesh and dwells among us. He's he's writing about Jesus who is the true historical person of God the Son taking on flesh and being with us. It is um, incredible when you think about Jesus being fully God and fully man. And it's a doctrine that has been important for us to guard it's, a, it's, a, it's an understanding of Christianity that has been critical to, to holding the gospel together. Uh, in fact, it was, it was this idea that became really the first controversy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna highlight a few church fathers for you this minute because really, uh, this morning, because uh, really the, the early church never really got over the incarnation. Uh, it, it always made them wonder. It always astounded them, and I, I hope to return some of that wonder to us this morning. But one of the first controversies uh, that the church dealt with was this idea of Jesus being fully God and, and fully man, and it starts around it kind of um, it's connected to uh, Saint Nicholas. So before Santa was delivering presents to toys, uh, you know, presents to boys all and girls all across the world, before you know plates of cookies were in jeopardy everywhere, right? Uh, Saint Nicholas of Myra was uh, punching heretics in the face. The story goes that there was a man named Arius who was a very well-known and popular priest in Alexandria. And Arius began to teach that Jesus had a moment where he was created, that there was a moment where Jesus was made. And, and some of the reason he would say that is because he believed that the scriptures held out that God truly can't be known that God is too big, too wonderful, like we're never, we never can really know God. And so what God did is he created Jesus to go into the world and to kind of be a, a, a messenger, be an, an intermediary for us to know something about God but not God himself because we couldn't truly know God. And this idea that Jesus had a beginning point that he was created began to create a stir within the early church. So much so that the emperor Constantine rallied a group of bishops together and he formed a council in the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. And as Arius began to present in this council, Saint Nicholas began to become upset. Because the ramifications of Jesus having a beginning point mattered. That Jesus being created meant something. It meant this. What what St. Nicholas began to realize is that if Jesus had a beginning point, then he did not exist within a pre-existing love relationship with the Father. And so if Jesus had a beginning point, then the Father's love had a certain point where it was placed on him. And Jesus enters into the world and, and he is loved by the Father for this moment he comes into the world. He's loved by the Father for the way that he went to the cross. He's loved by the Father for the saving work that he did. And St. Nicholas began to realize, and the other bishops there too, that if Jesus had a point where he was loved, then so do you. That you too were not made within preexistent love. That your life is now based upon something, a moment, a thing that you do, a thing that you accomplish for God to truly love you. And as Arius began to talk, St. Nicholas became more and more agitated, eventually left his seat, walked across the room, legend says, and punched Arius in the face. He was then escorted out, uh, restrained, and the bishops began to talk. And the bishops began to say this thing. They said, we are going to forever confess that the Son is of the same being as the Father and eternally beloved. Here's what they wrote. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. One in being with the Father. Begotten, not made. And there's, a, there's an important distinction in there. Begotten means um, that, that this is one and only, right? Made means there was a a point of creation. And so what they're saying is Jesus was always with the Father, is of the Father, like substance with the Father, light from light, truth from truth, life from life. He is begotten, meaning the one and only. There is only one and only who is fully God and fully man, and that's Jesus. Listen to what Isaiah 9, 6 says, because I think it it highlights this in some ways, a well-known Christmas passage. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Right, a child is born. Did Jesus come through the birth? Did the Son of God come through the birth of Jesus? Yes, but did the Son of God pre-exist? Yes, so a son is given. A child is born, but a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Because Jesus is the one who is face to face with God, right, and loved before the beginning, then you were made through preexistent love. It means that before you did anything right or wrong, you were loved. Before you did anything good or bad, you were loved. Here's how the gospel holds together. What it says is, is that love is first before performance. Because the son was in relationship with the father because he preexisted in this beautiful communion and fellowship. Because this love was shared between the father and son, so when then you and I were here, we were already loved. We were created in love, and our love, this love, was first before performance. So John, wonderfully, takes these first thirteen verses, and he's he's kind of pushing and pushing and there's the kind of taking us downward into this moment of 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 the flesh right of of the word becoming flesh and he's echoing all these moments of creation in genesis right the pinnacle of genesis creation was when the when the image of god was kind of formed in humanity in men day six the pinnacle of creation and now the pinnacle of John's prologue is when the image of God comes beautifully through a man. And we see this, God in the flesh, the Word, John says, became flesh. In other words, the Word took on flesh. Listen, it's important for us to know this, God didn't become less through the incarnation. God God didn't set aside, God the Son did not set aside his divinity when he became man. In fact, God the Son added to himself. Right, he, he, he brought humanity, to, he took on flesh. God added to himself. Jesus, the Son of God, right, is plus humanity. It's Jesus, God, plus humanity. Now, there's a, there's a verse that Paul uses that can sometimes be confusing, but man, it was so insightful to me looking at this. Paul said that God emptied himself in Jesus, Let me show you this. Philippians 2.7, it's talking about the servant quality, this humility that we see in Jesus. And Philippians 2.7, it says, but Jesus, God, God, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so the idea could be that God has poured himself out. Right? But what John is saying here, what Paul is saying is that God the Son poured himself into He emptied himself into the person of Jesus, that he was not less divine. He was not less deity. He didn't set that aside, but Jesus poured himself into the person of Jesus and now is fully God and man in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. That that word dwelt, it means um, to live in a tent It was in a tent, it tinted among us. And man, and that's also this amazing reference and allusion back into the old redemptive story where God takes Israel out of Egypt and he moves them to the Red Sea, he moves them into the wilderness. Moses and God have this encounter on Mount Sinai where God's law, right, the commandments come. And in this exchange, God begins to say some things to Moses. God begins to say about his desire to be with the people. In Exodus chapter 25, verse eight, God says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Now, that had not been said before. Not since the garden had God walked in the cool of day with man, and in fact, after the garden, there were only these kind of sporadic moments of communication where God would talk to Moses or, or God would talk to Abraham, but God had never been with his people since. Now with Moses, he's saying, I want you to build me a place. I, I want you to build me a dwelling. And so they created this tabernacle, a tent. It was, it was, it was a portable temple. And, and this, this tent was about 45 feet long and it had a couple different sections in it and the inner section of this tent was uh, the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's presence actually rested and in the Ark were the Ten Commandments and a couple jars of manna and then outside this Holy of Holies were these lampstands that were always burning this table with bread on it. Outside the tent, there was an area for sacrifices, an area for purification, and then around the tent were these curtains. And they they would put this tent of meeting in every encampment in the center of Israel. All 12 tribes would kind of radiate around this center point where God would meet with his people in this tent. It's incredible. Everywhere they went, God's presence would go with them. In this tent of meeting, God would speak to them. And they maintained this tabernacle for generations. And then King David, And King David had this hope and this desire that God would not be in a tent, but he would make something more permanent, more established for God to dwell. In 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verse 2, David says, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And here, here's a point that you can all agree on. Uh, here's, here's, a, here's something that we can all agree on that makes us very much like King David. And here's the point. Nobody really likes camping. No one does. Every time you go, you know what I'm talking about. People can tell you that camping is great, it's just not. You're gonna eat something over that fire and it's gonna be like, oh, it's so good, but you're like, this is really not that good. This is good because of like, the, we've lowered our standards of like, what's good. And I know this is true because the last time we went camping, my wife grabbed all the blankets off our bed to take into the tent and to kind of take up onto Montesano. And as soon as she did that, I'm like, I have a good argument now for us just staying home. Like, <laughs> we can go up there till 10 o'clock, be around the fire, and then we can come home. So David saw the way he lived and he saw the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant in a tent. And he said, this, we can do better than this. God said, it's not gonna be you, David. You're not gonna be the one to build me this temple, this place of permanent residence. It's gonna be your son, Solomon. And man, Solomon did it. He spared no expense. Like Solomon had this kind of uh, expensive wood and timber like rafted on the water from Joppa down the coastline and then transported into Jerusalem. The stones that were quarried were not even in Jerusalem. They measured them, manufactured them, quarried them a distance away, and then they just brought the stones and fit them together on Jerusalem. In other words, there was no hammer, there was no chisel, there was no saw. They built the temple in this reverence and awe and quiet. The interior of the temple had these overlays of gold sheets, the whole interior was just gold, and imprinted on it were like lions and angels. Palm trees, like it. It was it was breathtaking. There wasn't anything like it in the world. Some speculate. Some scholars look at the first temple that Solomon built, and they said if we were to do that again, it would cost somebody anywhere between three and six billion dollars. It's incredible. Solomon dedicates it right, and through this dedication, this prayer, where this, where the presence of God is going to fall inside the temple, like fill the temple. Solomon begins to say some things. Listen to what he says. Second Chronicles chapter six, verse one and two, and then 18, then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness, but I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Listen to what he says in verse 18. But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you how much less this house that I've built. Right in the middle of Solomon's prayer of dedication, he's doubting, what's really happening here? Is is God really gonna come and dwell with us? Can I really build God a house that is adequate of his sovereignty and divinity the maker of heaven and earth, the one who holds the cosmos together, is he gonna come and like, live in this place? And so Solomon, even the most amazing thing that was built, he's also wondering, like, how is this even possible? How could God really come and dwell with us? And that's what John begins to highlight right now. When John says, Jesus is the dwelling place of God, when he says the word took on flesh and dwelt among us, and he says, and we have seen his glory, John was like, can you believe it? God actually came, not in the tent, not in the temple, but in, a, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and we have seen his glory. Again, he's, he's drawing from a moment of the Old Testament experience, where Moses says, God, can I see your glory? I wanna know you. I wanna see your face. And in Exodus, when Moses asked God that, God's response is, you cannot see my face. No one can see my face and live. 1 Timothy 6 highlights this too. It says that God lives in unapproachable light. So when Moses says, God, I want to see you, I want to see your glory, I want to see your face, and God's like, you can't or you'll die. Remember, he tucks Moses in the cleft of a mountain and he covers him up with his hand and God passes by and He re- removes his hand so that Moses can see where God just was. You can see me go by. That's, that's, as, that's as close as you're going to get or you will die. Then the writer of Hebrews says this about Jesus Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What they're saying is no one has ever seen God until Jesus. No one has. has. No No one could know him, no one could see him. And yet, John's saying, We did, we beheld him. We saw his face. We touched him. John said, I, I leaned on his side. I leaned on his chest at the Lord's Supper. We were there. We saw it. We can now see the glory of God. God has shown himself to us through Jesus. And John wonderfully takes this revelation of God and, and he takes Jesus as the word, right? He keeps calling him the word. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory. In other words, John's taking the... the The God, the Son, and the Word, and he's putting them together, and he's offering it in this way. He's saying, if you want to know who God is, Jesus has explained him. He has articulated him. He is the message. Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection is what God has given us to clearly know him, to know him. It's fantastic. What John is saying is we can know God. You can know God, you can know your maker, you can know the creator of the universe, you can know the one who by all things were made and holds it all together. You can know him through Jesus, you can know God. And not only that, but when the word becomes flesh and dwelt among us, uh, you can know that God knows you. Not only can you know God, but you can know that God knows you, you can be sure of it. Hebrews chapter two, verse 17. That whole Hebrews two chapter is fantastic. But just this one little spot, it says, Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect. Made like his brothers in every respect. See, in the early days, right, the, there was always this confusion, like, can, God, can Jesus really be fully God and fully man? Can, can he really be, this? and so out of that, instead of just like kind of being in wonder of that, people began to dismiss parts of Jesus, either his divinity or his humanity. And there was one group out there that began to kind of, kind of lean away from the humanity of Jesus. They're like, well, maybe he wasn't really human. He was God, but when we saw him eating, when we saw him sleeping, when we saw him getting tired, that, that, he was just kind of, he seemed to be doing those things, but he wasn't really doing those things because he was God. Some of this still remains, We get confused when we think about Jesus. We watch his life, right, but there are moments where we think like, man, did he just kind of like take a hit of divinity? Did he just kind of stop being man for a second and got all godly, right? Like, is that what he was doing? Like, did he just kind of power up in that moment, just became God? And then all these other moments, they're like, but we don't see that. The gospels don't give us that. The gospels see Jesus crying, they see Jesus sweating, they see him exhausted. They give us a person who is fully human, all the time. Sinclair Ferguson says this. He goes, you have never felt as weak as the Lord Jesus felt. That's something to think about. You have never felt as weak as the Lord Jesus felt. Well, I thought he was God. He goes on to say, you have never felt as thirsty as Jesus. You have never felt hunger like Jesus. You've never felt as sorrowful as he felt. You've never experienced the shame that Jesus experienced, why is that? Because Jesus tasted all of these things in the flesh in the most sensitive of humanities. He was never numb, he was never dull, he was fully alive. See, what happens happens when you and I sin is when we sin, we take the easy way. We're met with a decision, There's an opportunity for obedience, an obedience that could be costly, an obedience that could be difficult or hard, right? And so when we sin, in a way, we're choosing what's easy. We're choosing what's now. Jesus never did that. So he saw temptation to a point that you never have. He suffered, he felt, he hungered, he thirsted, he ached in ways we never have. He felt deeply because he was fully alive, too, without sin. Augustine makes the statement about Jesus. Listen, he goes, man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. This idea that, that Jesus was made like us in every way, Hebrews 2.17, it, it, it speaks to this idea It's been said that what Christ has not assumed, he has not healed. What Christ has not assumed, he has not healed. Let me, I hope you say this in the positive. What God takes on, he also saves. What God takes on, he also saves. Christ took on flesh and blood so that flesh and blood could be healed. Because Jesus became like us in every way, he takes us in every way to the cross. And this is what we hope for, right? This Because Jesus came into the tangible, into the material. It means that heaven is not just gonna be a place where the world and the earth is discarded, but heaven is gonna be new. The world is going to be new. You're going to be new. You get a new body, because Jesus went to the cross in the body. With flesh and blood, what died on the cross is going to be resurrected and renewed as well, saved. So what Jesus takes on, he saves in this way. So our eyesight, it's gonna get better. Your blood pressure, cholesterol, it's gonna be good. Your anxieties, chemical depression, it's all gonna be made new because Jesus came in the flesh. He came in the body to renew it. And Jesus coming down into the very flesh and bones, right, and embodying all that we are, made like us in every way, means that flesh and bones will be renewed and restored as well. And because he was made like us in every way, he knows what we need. You have a God who's strangely and wonderfully walked in your shoes. He knows what your day is like. And when you're tired, he has mercies for you. And when you're struggling and weak, He has compassion for you because He knows. He knows what it's like to have a difficult family. He knows what it's like to be exhausted. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to lose friends, to work with difficult people. He knows. He knows all this. And because He's come in the flesh, because He was made like us in every way, right, we know that He knows us and cares for us. Jesus becoming man isn't only, right, so that we can believe that God knows what I'm going through, but it it means that we can now believe that if Jesus went through the things that I went through, then the things that I'm going through are not without purpose. Listen, if Jesus understands what it is to be tired and hungry and frustrated, then when you are, if God has done that, then it's a... Those moments are not without purpose. They're not without God still underworking those things. It's not without God still accomplishing things. Even in the darkest and most difficult aspects of your life, if Jesus experienced those things too and still came through the cross to resurrection, to glorification, then even the most difficult things that you're walking through are not without purpose because Jesus has been there. He's been there. Our salvation is only as good as our Savior. Our salvation is only as good as our savior. And because Jesus is fully God, he invites us into a pre-existing relationship with God as our father, and our lives now become sons and daughters. Because Jesus is fully human, right, he now, is the perfect substitute. He now is the high priest that advocates for us. He now knows our life and he now is in heaven kind of welcoming us in, knowing us, knowing what we need, having compassion, being where we are, he knows us deeply in this. And so we hold both of those things together, Jesus fully God and fully man. And as John writes, right, as as God is descending and the word becomes flesh, As Jesus does this, he raises us all with him. Jesus leaves heaven, but he returns with sons and daughters of righteousness. What a story. What a truth. Are you getting a sense that Christmas is more than about a cute baby in a manger? It's a really beautiful scene, the nativity oh my goodness, but there's so much more happening. There's so much more here for us. The gospel begins to amaze us. And if the incarnation has never just like broken something in your brain, then you haven't really considered it yet. If it hasn't changed you and renewed you, Like, then you haven't quite understood what's happening here. It means this that the eternal divine creator and sustainer of all things, infinite in majesty and holiness and excellence and glory, has come to earth for you. For you. For me. He's come for us. If there is any application to the sermon, Here's all I want you to do. I just want you to worship. Just be in awe. Let wonder kind of stir in your heart and, and begin to move you in affection towards this event that we celebrate that listen, why have I told you so many things the church fathers said from, you know, 300 and 400 AD cuz they never got over this either. They've always been like, can you believe it? The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen the glory of God in all of its grace and all of its truth. Let's pray. God, help us in this moment um, just be amazed and to give you glory to find ourselves in awe again of you that the Son of God would come for us I pray that the gospel never gets done overwhelming us. And we would be, this Christmas even even more, uh, filled with surprise and wonder, and that wonder would lead us to worship. Can you believe it? John says that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him, but to those who did receive him and believe in his name, he gave them the right to become sons and daughters of God. A decision that God was behind. A decision that God was fueling. God, I pray that if there's anyone here today, um, let, let Christmas be born in their own hearts. Jesus, be born in them. Let them believe, let them receive. And for others this morning, God, let us just be more amazed, more in awe and worship you.